The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. This is a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast recorded live at Capital Weekly's Conference on Housing Policy, May 26th, 2021. All right, so thank you so much for tuning in to our second panel of the day. My name is Tim Foster. I'm with Open California. We're the publisher of Capital Weekly. And today's panel, uh, or today's second panel on our California Housing Policy Conference, we'll be looking at the future of single-family zoning. Specifically, is it about to end? We've seen Sacramento uh, start the process of rejecting single-family zoning. Berkeley uh, went even a little bit further, and it's being looked at in the rest of the state. So our panelists and our moderator will be discussing that issue. Uh, very quickly, I'd like to thank our underwriters for this event. We've all been able to uh, sign in for free and, and watch this. Could not do that without our underwriters. And that's Tassin, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, WISPA, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, California Building Industry Association, Capital Advocacy, Perry Communications, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, and the California Professional Firefighters. And I want to thank them very much for making uh, this possible. We just could not do this without our underwriters. So with that, I'm going to turn you all over to our moderator today, Erin Baldessari. Our Erin is with KQED. She actually has her own housing uh, podcast, which I hate to say I've forgotten the title of. Uh, Nothing can compete with uh, Gimme Shelter. How can you have like, a title as good as that? Uh, but uh, but I do appreciate her handling the moderator duties today. And with that, I'm going to turn that over to her. If you have any questions, chime in on the Q&A function, and we will get to those at the end of our event. Uh, thanks so much. I'm going to step out of the way now. Erin, uh, it's all thanks, over. Thanks, Tim. Uh, the podcast is sold out, Rethinking Housing in America. We put out season one last fall. So if you haven't had a chance to subscribe, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And there will be a season two next fall. So Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for that. Thank you so much, Capital Weekly, for having me here. Um, I'm really excited to be here um, and to have all of you here with us. We have a great panel lined up. Um, single family zoning is something that I've actually been thinking about a lot this past year. Uh, you might call it California's sacred cow. These are the rules that shape what we think of as our suburbs, and they prohibit developers from building anything other than a single home on a single lot. They aren't unique to California, but they did get their start here. So Berkeley, surprisingly enough, was the first city in the country to implement single family zoning. And when it did, it was explicitly designed to use economic segregation to keep out low income communities of color uh, because single family homes were just more expensive than renting an apartment. Today, several cities are looking at eliminating single family zoning. As Tim mentioned, Sacramento voted earlier this year on a draft plan to allow fourplexes throughout its city. San Jose is considering a similar measure. Other cities like Berkeley and South San Francisco and Oakland are studying the idea. So let me be clear, these are not policies that would prohibit single family homes from being built. They would just allow other types of buildings like duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes to be built uh, in areas that have been so far restricted to one home on one lot. There's also state legislation, SB9, that would allow up to two duplexes on many lots uh, that currently only allow one home. But 
will what is being proposed mean that housing actually becomes more affordable? And how will these policies contribute to further gentrification and displacement of low-income communities of color? Do these proposals mean that housing in California is going to be any easier or cheaper? Uh, we're going to talk about all those questions with this great panel. Um, but before I introduce them, um, we want to hear your questions as well. So please drop them into the Q&A. We'll be monitoring that Q&A and we'll have some time at the end to go through those questions. Without further ado, our panelists, um, we have today Shajuti Hossein. She is a staff attorney with Public Advocates and her work centers largely on regional housing policy in the Bay Area, including implementing RENA, which I know all of you housing wonks understand what I'm talking about. For, but for those of you who don't, those are the state housing targets that cities must plan for. And that advocacy takes her into conversations with local elected leaders and local communities, as well as state policymakers. Lori Drosty is the vice mayor of Berkeley. Earlier this year, she introduced a resolution to eliminate single family zone, to eliminate exclusionary zoning in Berkeley that was adopted unanimously by her colleagues and as well as a, a proposal to allow fourplexes throughout the city. So we're gonna to talk to her about that in a minute. We have Isaiah Madison. He's a board member with the advocacy organization, Livable California. He studied urban planning and land use and is a local community organizer in South LA. Dan Dunmoyer is the president and CEO of the California Building Industry Association, which is a statewide uh, lobbyist group. Essentially, his work has oscillated between the public and the private sphere since the 80s, including serving for two years under as a as the deputy chief of staff and cabinet secretary for Governor Schwarzenegger. Uh, we had Senator Weiner on the panel today, but unfortunately his legislative duties have called him off. So he's in a floor session at the moment and won't be joining us. But Vice Mayor Drosty, I wanted to start with you. You introduced a proposal to eliminate exclusionary zoning in Berkeley and that resolution passed unanimously a few months ago. So why did you introduce that resolution and what's happening now? Well, thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to this discussion with uh, these distinguished colleagues. Um, so initially, I introduced this resolution to, to start this conversation around exclusionary zoning and really try to define the problem. You know, do we think exclusionary zoning is appropriate or not? And as you mentioned, Berkeley has a a long history of um, being at the forefront of single family zoning. And it initially started, as you mentioned, to uh, prohibit uh, Chinese laundromats and African-American dance halls from um, locating in certain parts of our city. Um, and so with the, the studies from the UC Othering and Belonging Institute uh, talking about the economic and um, racial outcomes that come from exclusionary zoning, I thought it was appropriate to revisit this, this conversation in how do we allow for duplexes or triplexes or fourplexes in certain parts of our city that are currently prohibited. Um, so we uh, unanimously decided that we wanted to do away with exclusionary zoning. Um, and Berkeley is, is actually, um, I'd say approximately less than half of our city is zoned single family zoning. Um, but there are other cities who are, you know, far uh, worse offenders, depending on your perspective, in, in other areas that have a larger swaths of their community that are single family zoned. And um, so council determined that that was the 
angle in which we wanted to approach this issue. And then subsequently, we passed legislation to uh, begin to update our housing element to pursue equitable zoning throughout our city with a number of caveats and provisions embedded into that proposal. You mentioned um, kind of trying to solve solve a problem uh, with this resolution. And I'm wondering if you could articulate what that problem is that this uh, resolution and whatever subsequent revisions to the zoning code might solve. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, you know, I think it, uh, I, on both sides of this issue, I think people think that it's going to it is um you know, uh, a silver bullet. I, I do not think that it's going to solve all of the problems in front of us, including housing insecurity, uh, housing scarcity. You know, I, I think um, a, a prominent uh, housing expert in the area said, you know, these are changes that might take 10 to 20 years to realize that there might be a duplex in a neighborhood that currently prohibited them. But what we do know is that our current zoning patterns uh, by default, prohibit affordable housing in large swaths of our community. And for us, that status quo policy um, is, is not beneficial to our community. And so, you know, I mentioned the UC Berkeley Othering and Belonging Institute earlier, and, you know, they have, they've shown that these zoning patterns lead to um, to racial and economic segregation in parts of our city. And we just wanna make sure that we're creating opportunity for all members of our community. So uh, we felt really strongly that we wanted to pursue um, an equitable path forward. Very great. I know we wanna talk about more about what that might look like in a little bit, um, but I wanted to turn to you, Dan. You know, One of the things that Vice Mayor Drossi just mentioned was just the difficulty in getting housing built. And I know you think a lot about this and I'm wondering what, how much does zoning factor in to uh, the challenges that developers see when they're trying to build anything, whether that's a single family home, a duplex or an apartment building. Well, thanks Aaron. And I too am looking forward to joining my colleagues today on this great discussion. Thanks Vice Mayor for your leadership on this in, in Berkeley and we need it elsewhere. Um, I just think a key phrase, though, from the vice mayor that really is unique to California is the reality of the fact that, you know, it's not surprising to hear someone in leadership of the city saying it will take 15 to 20 years to make a transition in this space, because um, that's very, very, very unique to California. It's the only place, frankly, in the world, um, but also this is focused on the United States where we have a lot of commonality. We just, as a the state have chosen to make it very difficult to build homes and all types of homes, whether it's single family, multifamily, um, and the process to get through from start to finish is uniquely delayed and elongated as compared to say a state like Oregon or Washington or Nevada, or Arizona, those that kind of surround us. Um, I think the key thing on the zoning side, we are excited about the fact that cities are looking to give us greater flexibility in the types of product we build and so being able to build duplexes, three, you know, triplexes, fourplexes is really helpful. Um, we've done it for years in cities like Sacramento and others. And we're even doing it in communities now um, because we can build homes that nobody knows are duplexes. They don't even look like it. They look like a big house. And we can even do fourplexes that way. And they actually look like a mansion. Uh, it doesn't look like a traditional elongated fourplex. 
But the biggest challenge to your question, Aaron, is just, you know, just getting to a zoning process that allows us to build and then letting that stay to its original intent. And what I mean by that is you go through your five, 10 or 15 year process to get a hundred units uh, approved for building. You go through the environmental impact reports, the regulations, 30 or 40 public hearings, three or four changes and then make up the city council who then modify it was 200 homes. Now it's hundred and then it's 80, then it's hundred. And you finally get it done, you go to build and then you start all over again because the neighbors who live next door decide we don't want those housing units here. And that's where we have a very unique process unparalleled. Let me give you an example of a very progressive state like Washington. In the city of Seattle, a very progressive city like San Francisco, um, once you go through that process, which by the way takes about two years, not 20 years, you by right can move forward. And within that area that's zoned for housing, you can legally move forward and build your housing units. And if a neighbor comes forward and says, hey, I just don't like this, it's like, no, we've been, we approved it. You had a chance to have 10 public hearings. We modified it, you know, added things, changed things. And, you you know, the builder has the right to build. In California, it just means you start over again. And a new city council might say, hey, I ran on no growth, so we're going to deny this altogether. And that's so unique in California. It's not unique to have tremendous community input, go through major planning processes, make changes. What's unique is once you get to yes, you know, you know, almost always can move forward and build in every other state in the nation except for ours. And that's what continues to add the complexity in the zoning process where uh, you know, an area of land zoned for 100 homes all of a sudden moves, back, moves down to 20 homes and then everybody complains about home builders building these big homes, single family, high-end and expensive. Well, um, that's what it takes once you move it from 100 homes to 20 homes to even break even and make a profit. And that's a unique challenge in California and what continues to make our housing crisis harder to solve. Thanks, Aaron. Jan, just to follow up on that, do you see, so I'm thinking specifically about SB9, which again would allow up to two duplexes on lots, uh, specifically in cities and specifically in neighborhoods that are zoned for single family um, houses. Do you see a policy like that allowing housing to be more, allowing developers to build housing at a lower price point that would make these houses more affordable? Yes, we do. And we saw this with the leader of Senator Wykowski and others on accessory dwelling units, granny flats, ADUs. Once you remove the high fees and the delay process of going through city councils, we're seeing a lot of ADUs being built throughout the state. And so if the pro tems bill, Senator Atkins bill that you mentioned, Aaron, is allowed to move forward, we do see that as a way to expedite the building of effectively duplexes or second home or second smaller home, depending on the size of the lot next to that home and adding greater densification in historically single family neighborhoods. So that is an, an opportunity, kind of depends on where it ends up. It's still in the sausage making process, but um, that will help. I mean, to us, our strategy is housing for all. So that includes ADUs, the second housing uh, units, um, you know, affordable, charitable, and single family and attached family housing, because that's really how you get to the number we need in California, which depending on who you pick, it's somewhere between a million and three and a half million new housing units we need. So to us, it's all the above, and that would be a, a positive step forward, but that's not going to get us all the way across the finish line of the housing units we need to bring down the cost of housing and address our housing crisis. And just some context for the audience on what Dan said, um, according to a, a recent UC Berkeley 
a study um, on ADUs in California, the median rental price for an ADU is about $2,000, um, ranging from 1925 in the Central Coast region to about 2200 in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, Isaiah and Chajuti, I want to bring you both in here. Uh, I know you have a different view on this supply side argument. And so, Isaiah, I wanted to start with you, um, you know, thinking about SB9 and uh, Dan's argument that by allowing uh, this greater density uh, in areas that are already zoned for single family, that could help lower the price point down. What do you see in the in your organizing and the, the realities on the ground in South LA? Um, well, I think the reality on the ground in South LA is that there is a true need for affordable housing. And that means, you know, actual uh, covenant uh, restricted affordable housing that will likely need to be built using subsidies from the government, um, which we currently lack in California. Um, but, you know, there's a high concentration of poverty where I live in South LA. Um, it's, ge it's generational uh, cyclical poverty. And um, the type of developments that these bills are proposing are purely market rate and um, would be a stark um, contrast to the type of people that live here already. Um, so, uh, you know, we just kind of reject the notion that we need market rate growth and we really want to focus on uh, subsidized affordable housing. We also reject the notion that, um, you know, a duplex would be more affordable than a single family home um, on the for sale market in South LA, just because we often see speculators coming in here, um, coming to South LA and, and purchasing homes and flipping them and um, often turning them into rental properties. So uh, we think that this bill will ultimately lead to more rental properties um, in South LA and a, a lower home ownership rate in our um, black home owner community, which is, you know, one of the largest in the nation. Shijuti, I wanted to also give you a chance to respond to what Dan was saying. Yeah, so, I mean, I myself actually lived in an ADU, an in-law unit in San Francisco, and it was just as expensive as the apartments in the area. So it was in the Sunset District of San Francisco. Um, so I think, you know, Ending single family zoning and allowing for duplexes and fourplexes in some neighborhoods may help, um, but it doesn't necessarily solve for the affordability crisis everywhere in California, um, especially because um, because they're still expensive. Like there's nothing um, that's requiring them to be deed restricted affordable. Um, and so similar to what Isaiah was saying, like, you know, we believe there needs to be um, more, you know, larger scale deed restricted affordable housing. Um, and that, you know, when we upzone in some communities, we need to be careful to make sure that we're not displacing existing residents who are um, maybe lower income, disproportionately people of color. Um, because if, you know, if there's a neighborhood, for example, Elmhurst in Oakland is predominantly lower income and people of color, they're renting single family homes. Um, but if their home, if their neighborhood gets upzoned, then they may be evicted so that the, you know, the homeowners there can create duplexes and fourplexes out of their properties. Um, so if, you know, if there's upzoning happening in a lot of um, existing communities of color, then we need to make sure that it's paired with other anti-displacement measures like, um, make, you know, like 
um, prohibiting demolition of um, homes that have had tenants for the past 10 years, um, giving them just cause eviction, um, rent stabilization, um, and then if displacement happens and providing meaningful relocation assistance. Um, so what, you know, basically, you know, it can help, you know, upzoning can help in some places, but it could also cause problems if we're not careful to um, add these anti-displacement measures. I'm glad you brought that up, Shijuti. So SB9 does include provisions uh, that prevent the legislation to apply to properties that have any sort of rent control, uh, rent controlled units that have had tenants for the past three years, or that have had that have seen an Ellis Act eviction in the past 15 years. I'm wondering if if you think those are sufficient protections for anti-displacement protections for tenants, and if not, well, how would you like to see them strengthened? Yeah, I think they're, um, those are good things, but we need more because there's so many different ways that tenants are displaced. Um, so, you know, increasing rents is one of them. So rent control, you know, um, preventing upzoning on rent controlled properties is helpful, um, but we would like to see um, prohibitions on upzoning or demolition of buildings where tenants have lived in the last 10 years, because three years is a pretty short amount of time. Um, and then other policies as well, like right of first refusal for any tenants who are displaced, um, sufficient notice to tenants if there's demolition or construction happening. A lot of times they just don't know that it's about to happen. Um, just cause eviction requirements to make sure they're not evicted for no reason. Um, a tenant opportunity to purchase so that they could actually purchase the new unit that's built. Um, Anti-harassment protections. There could be a lot of harassment going on to coerce tenants to leaving without an official eviction process. Um, and um, also uh, having a preference for adding and um, subdividing existing properties rather than demolition, because um, that could help incentivize more rent controlled units, given that rent control can only apply to older construction. Um, so all of those things I think are really necessary because they all um, are designed, all of those anti-displacement measures are designed to um, fix different problems that are affecting tenants and displacing, especially communities of color. Thanks, Sajuti. I want to go back to something that Isaiah talked about, which was the uh, decrease in home ownership uh, rates that we've seen in California, uh, particularly with um, homeowners of color and the increase in rental housing. So just looking at the construction industry research boards, housing permit data, uh, you can see that, you know, single family home permits had eclipsed multifamily permits every year uh, since 1973 with a brief uh, two year exception in the mid eighties. But since 2011, single family home permits have lagged behind multifamily uh, permits. So Dan, can you tell me what's going on there? What was the change since 2011? So a couple of things. I mean, what happened in, as you know, the Great Recession really hammered a lot of families who owned homes and lost them through foreclosure. Um, and obviously that impacts your credit scores and your ability to repurchase. And it was cataclysmic. I mean, you see cities and communities like Stockton where families were devastated and primarily people of color. Um, and so coming out of that, it's really hard to buy a home when you don't have credit. Um, and that put a lot more emphasis on moving towards uh, rental units, even single family rental projects, uh, because people had an income, they just didn't have either down payment or the credit to, to purchase. Um, so that's, we've had that window where we actually did move, as you noted, for a couple of years towards even more multifamily than single family. In the pandemic, we're seeing the shift the other way where people don't want to be an attached housing unit. They want some space. Um, and what was a cool hip 
know, multi-story loft in San Francisco actually became a place to move out of. We're seeing rents down seven to ten percent in San Francisco for the first time in a decade. So that's you know, that's a shift. We don't know if that's a two-year shift or an ongoing shift, but a lot of that has to do with the fact that coming out of the Great Recession, people are just not financially able to make or even qualify for uh, a loan. And especially after much of our crisis, there's many reasons it caused the Great Recession, but a lot of it was um, not you know, really underwriting uh, loans as well as we should have as a country. And that then we went the other extreme and effectively made it really hard for people to qualify. So we need to find a balance there, or maybe if somebody doesn't have a job and doesn't have a credit score, maybe they shouldn't get a loan. But to go to the other extreme of having a job for 10 years and $100,000 down payment and a bank walking away from you is too high risk, that's kind of where we've shifted in more recent times. So finding that sweet spot would help us give people more opportunity to own a home, which is a high priority for us. So I'm wondering what the implications are then for SB9 and policies like what Berkeley is considering or what Sacramento has proposed. You know, should we expect that these properties that are being that, you know, these new duplexes or quad, you know, quadplexes, fourplexes are are going to be rental housing? Can we expect some of them to be for sale? What is your crystal ball telling you? You know, that's a really good point. And Isaiah raised some really good points I, I, on, on the importance of homeownership. I mean, let's look at our African-American community. We have a lower homeownership of African-Americans in our state than we did during civil rights, pre-civil rights. And that's just morally wrong. And it speaks to the underlying issue of the price of our product and how difficult it is for people to have that homeownership. Do I, you know, looking at that activity, as long as we take 15 to 20 or 25 years to build things, the price of those products will be two times higher than Reno or Phoenix. And so to your question, you're gonna see people of wealth will be the ones who own the duplexes or triplexes and make it harder to make those home ownership. We're trying really hard one of our, our we have a nonprofit home builder uh, called Homes by Town that has created a mechanism where they really do pursue families who sign up to have home ownership of duplexes and triplexes and try to make it so that it is a home ownership opportunity. We know for two key facts, one, if you're a homeowner, your wealth creation is 25 times greater than a renter. And so for us, that's a really high priority. And some might say, well, why is that in your interest? Because those people tend to be able to help their children buy homes and you can perpetuate an ongoing home ownership routine. If it's all rental, it's really hard to gain enough equity to gain wealth unless you invest in stocks or other mechanisms, which are hard to do when you're so rent poor. And so we are looking for ways to make those communities work better. And we've been successful. It's not a guarantee if you build the tripex, it's going to be that much cheaper than a single family home. It's a little bit more affordable. Um, but, you know, I think, so Judy's right, that's not, you know, a guarantee. And especially where you have tremendous demand, you're going to have to build a lot more houses before the price point comes down. So I think the last piece I just want to emphasize we do create housing that's affordable and attainable for ownership in many other states, probably about 46 of them. Um, and so to us, it's not an issue of we can't cure this problem. This is fixable. It requires courage of our political leaders. It requires changing how we approve housing uh, throughout the state. And until that happens, we're going to really price out a lot of families. And in California, it's primarily people of color, Latinos, African-Americans, um, and so that's something that for us is we've got to change if we want to make this a state where people can actually own a home. 
are rent at a, po a point where they're not so rent dependent and not even able to save money to buy a home if they want to. Thanks, Dan. Um, Vice Mayor Drosty, I know that you're kind of in the weeds here on the on the ground in Berkeley. So I'm just wondering how that's playing out in your community. Um, you know, I know it's always a slow process whenever we talk about zoning. So I don't know how, how far along you are in the discussions, but you mentioned, you know, some provisions you wanted to, to put in this um, legislation to allow, uh, you know, fourplexes in Berkeley. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the specifics of what you're looking at, how you might, given what Dan just told us about, um, you know, sort of the realities of, of the building, you know, construction industry, how are you trying to mitigate that in Berkeley to specifically lessen the impact on uh, low and, and middle class renters? Well, yes, uh, absolutely. We are in passing our legislation. Um, we have sent the sort of the general concepts to our planning commission to then uh, formulate uh, formulate all of our various thoughts and uh, along with our housing element uh, update, send it back to council uh, for final approval. So that's the way it works in Berkeley is we have to send it to our, our planning commission. Now, um, we absolutely uh, want to address concerns around displacement and affordability. And, you know, I'd just like to remind people that the, the status quo right now is that affordable housing is not allowed in a majority of our communities. Um, and I'll also just say, I, I think that um, my colleagues mentioned um, really important uh, provisions around tenant protections. That too is something that uh, Berkeley included in our legislation. And again, I'll just add that the status quo right now is that tenants aren't protected in single family homes around, around the state. So um, there are many, many measures in our item, um, including addressing concerns around um, fire safety. I know that is a, a big concern, at least here in Berkeley, around the, um, the the high wildfire area zones and, and making sure that we um, we are creating safe conditions, you know, when we are augmenting our, our housing in our community. But, but one thing that I think a lot of people who aren't immersed in this conversation don't realize is that cities across California are going to have to update their zoning because of our regional housing needs allocations. So as an example, uh, Berkeley uh, previously had to zone for 3,000 units, and now we are having to zone for uh, 9,000 units. And so, again, we're trying to figure out a way and to, to do that equitably. Um, you know, this talk around affordability is really important, and we have uh, some of the nation's leading experts in affordability and anti-displacement uh, uh, policies supporting this legislation. Even the National Low-Income Housing Coalition uh, applauded Berkeley's efforts to undo exclusionary zoning because they know that it will um, that it will allow for more affordable housing throughout uh, our community. Um, I'll also just add that um, we've seen when we're looking at um, homes throughout. Berkeley, you know, who can afford to live in uh, various units, right? So we, right now, I think I saw a listing yesterday of a home in Menlo Park that was one bathroom, one bedroom for $2 million. 
So that's the status quo right now. And in looking at our census data and pulling our census data to see what incomes can afford either a single family home or a duplex, we know that that people who um, who have lower incomes are able to afford those units more readily than a single family home option. Are they are they all? out of control? Are they all too expensive? Absolutely. I, I think that we're all in agreement here. Do we need to maximize uh, the creation of those subsidized affordable housing units? A hundred percent. We need to figure out a way in which we can uh, we can do it all. I think ultimately, I think we, we, it sounds like we agree on these general concepts. Sort of the, the, the fundamental distinction is whether um, what is the role of housing that is uh, sold on the market that is not subsidized, and if there is a need for that, um, and you know, I would I would argue that there is because we're seeing those homes on the market go for one point four million dollars, and those individuals are displacing uh, longtime community members. So. I think that that this is a, a challenging situation that we need to go about very thoughtfully, and and my feeling is that Berkeley is is embarking in that endeavor. Shijuti, I wanted to bring you in here. I know you spend a lot of time thinking about that regional housing needs allocation in Rena, the whole Rena process, um, and you know we I have heard from. Uh, folks that I speak to about uh, this push to eliminate single family zoning, that a big part of that is the RENA process, that cities are are looking at their communities and saying, well, we can't, you know, we've already zoned our commercial corridors for, you know, tall apartment buildings, and we can't, you know, we can't put more there, so we have to look elsewhere. Um, So I'm just wondering, you know, what you're hearing from local communities as they're going through the Rena process in the Bay Area, um, how single family zoning plays into that. And also, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about kind of um, the difference between a policy like SB9, which is sort of a blanket statewide policy versus cities trying to think critically about their own communities through the Rena process. Sure. Yeah. So I haven't heard about a ton of cities talking about um, you know, ending single family zoning altogether yet. I mean, it's really, I'm only hearing about it from Berkeley and starting to hear it in San Francisco and Oakland um, and San Jose, but it's really still in the early stages. So, you know, we're waiting to see what happens. But I think really to meet these much higher arena targets this time, there has to be, you know, more wider scale multifamily zoning that allows more than just fourplexes, but, you know, ac- you know larger affordable housing developments. Um, that, you know, it still fit the nature of the neighborhood, like it doesn't have to be a high rise to be, you know, larger scale, like it can still have 20, 30, 40 units and still fit the, you know, like the architecture and style of each neighborhood. Um, so I'm, you know, we're still like the local housing element process is only just beginning. So we're just starting to hear what cities and counties are thinking about and how to meet their arena targets this time. Um, so we'll definitely be looking out for that. Um, but really the rezoning um, is one big aspect of the arena. Like the arena is, um, you know, requiring cities and counties to figure out how they're going to make space for um, our growing population and making sure that everyone um, from all backgrounds and all income levels can find a place to call home in the Bay Area. 
Um, and then remind me what your second question was. I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about, you know, the pros and cons of a statewide policy like SB9 applying equally across, across California versus cities trying to work through these questions on a city by city basis. Yeah, I think there's room for a little bit of both. So, um, you know, the RENA plot process is already state mandated and the state requires this local housing element process to meet the RENA targets. Um, and that's where cities and counties are required to engage with community members, key stakeholders uh, from all economic segments of the community to figure out how they're going to meet their housing targets. So, um, you know, that's already required by the state. And um, really what's needed is the local analysis at every jurisdiction to see how how, um, you know, changing uh, zoning changes could affect lower income communities and communities of color um, because it's going to look different in different places. It's going to look different um, even within a city, like especially in the more urban cities, like there are um, predominantly wealthy and white neighborhoods and then there are predominantly lower income and community of color neighborhoods. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to have state legislation to um you know, require cities and counties to be thinking about this. Um, we don't really have a specific position on SB9, but um, I think generally like having state law and like having the state housing, Depart Department of Housing Community Development overseeing this process, um, make sure that every city and county is doing their fair share. But at the same time, there needs to be that, um, you know, local nuance understanding of what, um, what policy changes, how they would affect their um, communities. Like, you know, for example, in the housing element process, cities and counties will be identifying different parcels across their city um, to identify which ones they want to rezone. So in that case, you know, now state law even requires um, housing elements to include an assessment of fair housing, which basically means that they're required to see how their zoning changes and policy changes will affect um, communities of color, residents of color, um, lower income communities. And, you know, fair, fair housing comes from the Federal Fair Housing Act, which is a civil rights era law. So it is about addressing racial segregation and making sure that we're investing equitably in communities of color as well, making sure everyone has access to opportunity. What do you do about cities that just don't want to add more housing or might be trying to circumvent these, these, um, you know, this process, um, or might just be resistant to allowing multifamily housing or allowing affordable housing. Um, we've certainly seen that, you know, across the state. How do you get those cities to budge? Yeah, that's a huge challenge. That's why organizations like public advocates exist. <laughs> um, so, you know, the housing element process helps because now it's their stronger state oversight. Um, if they're not meeting their housing element, they'll, they'll get, you know, they'll have less access to funding. So at the Bay Area level, we have something called the One Bay Area Grant Program, which incentivizes um, compliance with housing element law um, in order to receive transportation dollars. And every city and county wants transportation dollars. So uh, if they comply with their housing element, they can get that funding. And that's like one incentive and they lose out on it if they're not complying with their housing element. Um, also organizations like ours could sue them and say like, look, you have all these um, lower income tenants um, in your city or in the neighboring city who can't afford to live here and you're not doing anything in your housing element about it. Um, so there are these other like enforcement mechanisms um, and with state law now requiring cities and counties to affirmatively further their housing or actively address racial segregation. Um, now we have stronger legal hooks for that as well. So at the state level, state enforcement, regional, like regional incentives and um, third party enforcement. I think those are all ways that can um, push these cities to do more. Great. 
Izzy, I wanted to ask you, you know, what would an appropriate policy look like to increase the supply of housing while still protecting low-income communities of color? Um, I think our local city count, um, city planning department in Los Angeles has made some efforts to do this. Um, you know, I'll reiterate the problem. The problem is that, you know, we, this is, we have conservative tools in the state. You know, this, we only have a market in the state because of Howard Jarvis and because of, you know, the ban on public housing in 1950 and because of the ban on affirmative action in, in 1996. So it's, it's not really, you know, it's, in my opinion, it's not possible to really create the amount of affordable housing that we truly need. And it's really going to take the federal government stepping in and really funding uh, uh, subsidized affordable housing. And I think we actually saw today um, one of the Biden, uh, I think it's the job infrastructure package that's going to really put billions of dollars into um, LIHTC, uh, low-income low housing tax credit, and into a new program that's supposed to uh, focus on rehabilitation of, uh, of low or affordable housing in, in coastal markets where construction often exceeds the price of just acquiring an older structure. Um, but, you know, our city planning department has tried. We do have uh, TOC, transit-oriented communities in Los Angeles, um, that is a kind of a replica, a local replica of density bonus law that grants developers uh, parking reductions, setback reductions, height reductions, um, density uh, increases, all for providing a specific amount of affordable housing, which is higher than the density bonus threshold. So that has been a, a somewhat successful program, but you know we're still seeing buildings that are 85% market rate housing, and that still it, you know, it really doesn't reduce the the racial effects of gentrification. You know, we're still seeing buildings going up in predominantly black neighborhoods that um, the the new the new tenants don't reflect um, the surrounding community, and the new businesses uh, you know don't cater to the surrounding community in the way that the parcel the businesses that were on the parcel before um, did. So, you know, it it. I wish I had a better answer for you because it, it's it's a it's a dark picture. But you know we are trying to put even market rate housing wherever we can put it. You know it's not like we don't want other races to move to this neighborhood. You know it just it just you know racial gentrification. You know it, it breeds resent amongst people that are already in the neighborhood who aren't having the opportunity to move on. You know to move on with their life, move um, into. A new house in the neighborhood, um, and we see those opportunities going to, to often tech workers who are people who just moved here from the East Coast after graduating college, and we want to see those people succeed too. But you know, it's really a question of equity, and there are different markets in different places. You know, so I'm not against single family ending single family home zoning. I'm you know, Livable California is really a local control advocacy group and we recognize that you know the market is different in different places and we really have to take a, a local approach to analyzing the, the problems at the local level. Great, Isaiah, and just some some context for, for the federal funding that you mentioned. Uh, 
President Biden's uh, proposed 2.3 trillion infrastructure uh, plan had initially included $213 billion in housing investments. But today, actually, as as this panel was, uh, as we were talking, uh, I got an email from uh, HUD saying that Secretary Fudge has announced an increase um, in their proposal to $318 billion. So um, it'll be interesting to see uh, if that gets approved and how that plays out uh, here. Um, we're going to turn now to audience questions, and um, the Q&A has been coming in fast and furious, um, so I want to get to as many of those as possible. Um, one of our uh, audience members asked whether ending single-family zoning could bring about a so-called Manhattanization, um, so increased construction of much taller buildings that um, might be out of character of the neighborhood um, in areas that are already dealing with large amounts of construction and how will this increased construction affect lower income residents in the area? Um, let's see, Dan, why don't you take a first stab at that and maybe we can get some responses from other panelists. Yeah, this is a great question and one that's come up a lot because of what the leadership of Senator Weiner in the area of Senate Bill 50, and that was one of the major arguments against it. Just a couple of facts in this area that make Manhattanization difficult to happen. And it really is the cost of the property and the product. Anytime you get past four or five stories, the cost of building goes up fivefold. So I'll say that again. Anytime you go past four or five stories, the cost of building the sixth, seventh, eighth, the infrastructure you need, the plumbing systems, the, the steel, the concrete, the, you know, when you're doing a single family home, it's an, it's, 18 inch footing when you're doing a seven story home it's a four story footing uh, especially if you are required to do parking so you know we we do not see that if you take a small city that has average height of two or three stories you're not going to see a 40 story building because the average price of that home is going to go through the roof you might see it in san francisco you do see it in san francisco you see some large complexes there but those start at a million and a half to two million dollars so you're not going to stick that in Temecula or Moreno Valley or some small community because there's just nobody there who makes that kind of money so I think that's a specious argument only because generally speaking you can't afford to build 30-story buildings in every single city in the state only in Los Angeles San Francisco and maybe San Diego San Jose the rest of the state if you were allowed to have some height it might be three or four stories and that's not crazy. That's not Manhattanization. That's affordability. So we do think there's a ability to do that. I'll just say where we struggle in this area, Aaron, is really the schizophrenia of the state. We have a, we had four new regulations that went into effect during the pandemic. One of them was vehicle miles traveled, which really is a law that says we want you to move into the urban core, into the transit-oriented districts, and we want you to build up. And then same during that same time, we defeated SB 50, not we, but the legislature, we supported it. SB 50 was defeated because it could Manhattanize. We don't want tall buildings. So you have these policies that just collide like planets and you know people get squished in the middle of it, which is don't build in the suburbs, but don't build downtown. So we kind of joke about the Lemiz line of building castles in the sky. It's like, well, where do we build them? Um, so really we need a cohesive policy, one that says it's okay to build in the urban core and we're not gonna load it up with requirements um, or it's okay to build in the suburbs. And frankly, we need all of it. I guess the last thing I'd say is if you are gonna to require that you do to Isaiah's comments and, all, and also Sajidi's comments, you need to be able to make sure there's access for affordable housing. 
and um, that does generally require a subsidy. Uh, $318 billion is a lot of money. The housing need we have in the state of California is $2 trillion, $35 billion. And that was using the average housing price of $650,000. Now it's $813. So we do have a big nut to crack. We need all the above. We build a lot of affordable with our membership, Jamboree, WNC, and others. But you also need to us, we need all types. And to this whole issue of building in the urban core, if you build taller than four stories, you're pricing out 97, 98% of the population. So one, we don't think it's going to happen, but if it does happen, you're only building for the ultra wealthy. And to us, they don't need help finding a house. They can spend $2 million, as the vice mayor said, in a one bedroom, one bath home, which is absurd. And we need to make it so that the average family with the average income can afford a three bedroom, two bath home if they want to, or rent one at a price that allows them to save money and take care of their family. Thanks, Dan. Um, one of our uh, question answers wanted to know, and Isaiah, this one's for you. Um, you talked about the need for greater, uh, for subsidized affordable housing, um, but also the need to increase home ownership. And so I'm just wondering um, what that might look like. How do we have subsidized, uh, how do we build uh, housing that might use government subsidies to make it affordable to a low-income folks that also provides a home ownership opportunity. Um, you know, well, that's a that's a program that you know that is a thing that can already happen with the tools we have. I think it's it's not incentivized because, in my personal opinion, I think the problem is for sale housing in general is that we really haven't nailed down how to create high density affordable housing. Um, you know, it's very uh, hard to. To, to finance it because you have all these units that you all of a sudden put on the market and you know they have to all be absorbed before you can pay off the loans um, that you've taken out to construct the building um, and uh, you know so it, it it's really it's really just something to, to me that we have to figure out on the construction side but there are for sale uh, affordable housing developers you know they just aren't really uh, large in scale but um, I have seen a few projects um, where the, all the stock is for sale and it's affordable and it's just a LIHTC funded project. There are also a few projects, two that I can think of in San Pedro um, that are small lot subdivision projects. So, you know, like sm small homes that they divided, uh, a piece of land where they divided like into small homes are like three stories um, that utilize density bonus. And one of the 20 are, you know, a for sale affordable home. So, you know, there are ways, but I think it's mostly um, a, a construction problem. You know, the liability when you create a for sale house is that, you know, the, the home builder is liable for 10 years. And, you know, what does that look like if the home builder has so much liability and, and it's a, it's an affordable housing project, you know, I, I just, I would be curious to see if there are um, case studies, but yeah. Sounds like you and Dan have some agreement there uh, in thinking about the role of regulations uh, on our, our construction industry. Um, Vice Mayor Drossi, one of our question answers wanted to know if you believe that higher density will automatically lead to greater affordability. Um, well, really quickly, if I may, you know, I whenever I hear this um, concept of Manhattanization, I want to get a sense of what what individuals are talking about. Are they talking about the building form? You know, so um, and I would just 
add really quickly is that um, many of the uh, the ideas around missing middle housing show us that they fit very well into our neighborhoods, right? It could be it could be a essentially a large home, the same, you know, the same dimensions as a single family home, but just two families can live there. So I just want to point that out that um, I think there, uh, there are ways to address these concerns around looming towers and residential neighborhoods, which is nothing that, that we have suggested. Um, so in, in terms of your question, do I automatically think that uh, that zoning changes will uh, magically cure the affordability crisis. No, I don't think so. But again, I just want to point out relative to the status quo, it is an improvement. There is a reason why affordable housing advocates, you know, the National Low Income Housing Association, anti-displacement experts are supportive of this type of proposal is because again, we are prohibiting affordable housing in vast swaths of our communities and regions. And we've seen the the negative effects of that um, as it relates to racial and economic disparities. You know, I really resonated with what Isaiah had to say in that, you know, when you look at the development patterns of our cities, where do you see the majority of high density housing? Well, you see it in areas where it's allowed. And that tends to be our lower income census tracts. So why not pursue equitable zoning reforms and open up other parts of our city to more opportunity? Um, and, and that also goes for our suburban areas as well. So um, it is not, you know, I, I have never advocated uh, that it is going to solve everything. You know, we need to focus on um, prevent preventative measures as well, preservation measures, but this is fundamentally part of the, the, the solution in allowing for more housing types, which we have seen um, in our past, right? If you walk around my neighborhood right now, there are fourplexes in my neighborhood that are currently banned. And what we've seen through a variety of measures through restrictive zoning um, over the past few decades is we have seen a vast displacement and exodus of our African-American community in Berkeley. Um, and that, that's directly related to the amount of homes that we're creating relative to jobs available. So I think this is, this is something that uh, cities are going to have to tackle and whether they, they tackle it sort of proactively like uh, the way Berkeley is trying to do, or whether it's to try to meet the regional housing needs allocations brought down uh, by the state through Senate Bill 828 with our housing elements, cities are going to be half to having these conversations about how they're going to grow, regardless of whether they put forward an explicit policy or not. Thank you. Uh, we have five minutes left. Um, and uh, we'll see if we can get a couple more questions in. But, you know, one of the things that I think about sometimes is kind of the cost of doing nothing. And so, Shijuti, in your um, organizing, um, how much does that factor into the policies that you consider um, when evaluating things like SB9? And Isaiah, I guess this question is for you also, uh, that you know, when, when livable California is setting its, its policy direction, 
what kind of evaluation is paid to the cost of not allowing for increased density or of not allowing policies to allow uh, more houses to be built? Sure. So we think of it more about like, not exactly around the cost to do nothing, but more about like what's going to actually build community power. Because the root of the problem is that um, uh, lower income and communities of color, especially Black and Latinx um, communities, have not had influence at their local, regional, state planning at all. Um, so really what needs to be done is increased engagement with impacted residents. Like all the, you know, black families who are forced to leave, like let's talk to them and find out what could help them come back if they want to, or what could help them grow and thrive in their new homes if they want to. Um, so it's more about the, the question I see is more about like what's actually going to grow community power. And that um, that is one big question that at public advocates we use to evaluate our work is, you know, are we working with the most impacted residents and what are they saying that they need to be able to thrive and prosper just like everyone else? Thanks, Sujuti. Isaiah, you have maybe 30 to 45 seconds. <laughs> I'll take less. So I really, I think livable California really sees that as a local issue. You know, um, some communities um, are, are fervently anti-growth and that's how they view, um, you know, maintaining their quality of life, maintaining their, their local culture, you know, and, and some communities see that as a problem and, and, you know, are deciding to grow a lot more than what the arena allocations uh, call for. I think West Hollywood in Southern California built a lot more housing than the arena allocation called for. But, you know, that's really, and, and whether or not, you know, advocates think that is acceptable, that communities you know, are deciding that they want to grow slowly is a political question that really has to be addressed um, in, in local politics and, and, you know, through the governor's rhetoric. So, yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you, Dan and Vice Mayor Drosty and Shijuti and um, everyone at Capital Weekly for having me. This was a great conversation. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us and for asking great questions. All the audience members out there really appreciate it. Aaron, thank you so much. And thanks so much to all of our panelists. We are going to uh, close off now for a half hour and take a little bit of a lunch break. Uh, the Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week.